We're in uh, John chapter 7 again this morning. We're going to be looking, beginning in verse 25. I'd like to ask you a, a question for your consideration this morning. Does God's patience ever run out. We have soul-stirring promises like the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 86.1, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And what about the time that God reveals Himself to Moses and reveals his, his nature, his character, who he is. Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Is God's patience ever run out? Those texts would kind of seem to settle it, but the answer would be no, right? There is an account of Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 24 when he's foretelling what his second coming is going to be like, and he says that it's going to be as it was in the days of Noah. No one in the days of Noah had ever seen such a, a cataclysmic event as the flood. And certainly no one since has seen anything like it. So naturally, people didn't believe that anything was going to happen, did they? Scholars say it was likely some hundred years between God telling Noah to build the ark and Noah actually building the ark and the rain coming. A hundred years. Could you imagine if you were there and a hundred years passing by? Imagine that 20 years. Are you sure something's going to hap actually happen, Noah? Are you sure? Because I think you're kind of crazy. And then a hundred years. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that everyone was going on about their lives, eating, drinking, carrying on in marriage as though nothing were going to happen until suddenly the door to the ark was closed and the water began to fall. And those who were on the earth outside of the ark, they had an answer to the question of God's patience ever runs out. Because for some 100 years, there was time to repent. But a day came when the doors were shut. God's patience had been exhausted and every living creature on the planet was destroyed. Peter picks up the theme of the flood as he speaks of the day of the Lord, of the coming, the second coming. He says in chapter 3, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? You ever heard someone talk like that? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, it's been a hundred years, Noah. You really think that something's going to happen? It's been thousands of years that this earth has been here just fine. You really think that Christ is going to come back and just put an end to all of this? He goes on to say, Peter does, for they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. He says they deliberately overlook this fact. Do you know what that means? On purpose. It means they on purpose overlook the fact that once upon a time there was a massive flood, an earth, a, a worldwide flood that destroyed every living thing. They intentionally overlook it. He goes on to say in that passage a few verses later that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, 
and he's patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Listen to this part. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, there will come a day when God will no longer show patience. There will be a day where he will no longer wait for people to turn to him. There will come a day when it's too late. This pertains to humanity at large. But there's another consideration here at the individual level. Let us not forget that the day an unbeliever dies, that's the day that there is no more patience. According to an article on the CDC's website that was published in August of last year, the average life expectancy is 76.1 years. That is 913.2 months, 3,970.7 weeks, 27 million, or I'm sorry, 27,794 days, 667,078 hours, 40,024,734 minutes, and 2,401,484,047 seconds that God graciously and mercifully waits for a sinner to turn and repent. And that is that many years, months, weeks, days, hours, minutes, and seconds that the individual rejected Christ. Whether God appoints the 76.1 years or 100 years or 29 years, the day that time runs out for the believer is the day that the patience of God will nowhere be nowhere to be found. This is what we will refer to this morning as the dreadful side of divine timing. We, we think often and we find much comfort in God's timing, don't we? That everything's going to happen according to God's timing. Friends, we should. I'm not disparaging that this morning. But we forget that there's another side of divine timing when time runs out. There is another side of divine timing. That is that God has appointed for all men a day where they perish. Further, God has appointed a day in, his, in the future where the whole world will perish and everyone will be brought to judgment. That is the dreadful side of divine timing. It is in that moment when God's divine time clock and the moment the second hand stops moving, that is a moment of great dread and terror. For it is the moment that the unbeliever no longer has time to turn to Christ anew. It is the moment when the unbeliever will be confronted with the reality of what he refused to believe all of his life. Some have said that hell is truth known too late. That is the sad reality before us this morning in our text in John. We come to a very sorrowful passage. There are, of course, pockets of brilliant light in here, but this text is one that contains a very clear look at the consequences of the darkness of the human heart. We're going to see in our text that our Lord is once again misunderstood by a crowd and rejected by the religious leaders, and then the consequences according to God's sovereign plan and purpose. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand this text this morning. Father, we give you honor and glory that you are in control of all things, that you are sovereign over all of human history, that all things are working out according to your plan. And while there are things that we will not understand we know that it is true. This morning, Lord, as we have this time together in your word, would you use this to our benefit and your glory? Would you please help?
help us to understand and help us to even feel the weight of this text and the urgency that is contained therein. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to begin by looking at the misconceptions of the people. And there's, there's two different categories of people here. There are, there's just the general crowd, and then there are the religious leaders. And there's two different interactions here between the crowd and then the religious leaders. So the crowd interacts with Jesus, and then the religious leaders interact with Jesus. So in, in both sections, we're going to see the group of people saying something to Jesus or misunderstanding or showing their, their hatred and vitriol for him. And then we're going to see how Jesus is responding to those things. So let's begin in verses, uh, verse 25. We're, let's read this big section, 25 to 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Let's take just a second to remind ourselves where we are in this chapter. At the, at the beginning of chapter 7, we're made aware that Jesus was not walking openly in Judea, but only in Galilee because the Jews wanted to kill him. Jesus heads up to the Feast of Booths about halfway through the week or halfway through the seven-day festival, and he begins to teach in the temple openly, publicly. We spent some time learning last week from Jesus about trustworthy teaching And then the last section, go ahead and look at that, verse 24, the last verse of the last section, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Interestingly, in today's section, we're going to see an excellent example of what it means to judge by appearances. Verse 25 begins here by telling us who is in focus in this particular scene. It's some of the people of Jerusalem. As we said previously, the the Feast of Booths would have been observed in Jerusalem because that's where the temple was. So everyone would come from around the area to Jerusalem. But we can't forget that there are some people who are townies, some people who are from Jerusalem. And now that's who we're focusing on. So we've seen in, in verse 12, John was talking about the people generally, just everyone who was there. Then verse 20, it was the crowd that's, again, just just everyone who's there. But now he's specifically talking about, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem. So now he's focusing in on a particular group. Why does that matter? Well, being local to Jerusalem, they, they would have had greater access to the teaching of the religious leaders as the main leaders who were there. They, they would have operated the temple. Thus, they would have been more well acquainted with what they were like. Perhaps they got to know their mannerisms and their moods and that sort of thing. Who knows? But that's why John draws out their question here. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? Who's who's they? It's the Jewish leaders. As John often refers to, it's the Jews. Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? They understood that their leaders wanted to kill him. They, they want to put him to death. So how it is that they know this, it's, it's not exactly clear. We don't know. John doesn't tell us. But John wants us to see that the hostility against the Jews was, was both severe and public enough at this point that these people of Jerusalem, they knew what was going on. So they ask among themselves, is not this the guy that they're trying to kill? This, this is the man they're seeking to kill. And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Do you see what's going on in their minds? 
they're listening to their leaders and they're hearing and saying, wow, this, this is the bad guy. This is the one they're trying to kill. And here he is speaking openly. Perhaps when they first saw him, they're, they're feeling that hostility that the leaders had against him too. But now he's teaching without anyone impeding him. No one's telling him to stop. No one's doing anything. And he's in the middle of the temple, in the middle of the feast. What's going on? Why aren't they stopping him? Could it be that there is a bit of a conspiracy afoot? Perhaps they know that this is actually the Christ. Maybe he actually is who he says he is. After all, here he is on their quote-unquote home turf, and no one is stopping him. Maybe they're not doing anything about his presence or his teaching because they've come to the conclusion that this actually is the Messiah. This is the coming one. We can only imagine what a stir this must have caused among the people. Our leaders hated this person and they were looking for an opportunity to kill him because of his claims. But now here he is openly and publicly still making these claims. He hasn't changed his message. Maybe they've come to the conclusion that what he's saying is true. They're confused by the mixed messaging, but also confused because of their own misconceptions about the Messiah. So as they think about that, and they discuss that among themselves, could it be that they think that this is the Messiah? Now they say, but we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. In other words, they're kind of thinking to themselves, if they have come to the conclusion that he's the Christ, they're wrong. Because we know where this guy is from, but when the Messiah comes, we're not going to know where he's from. This teaches us a little bit about what they believed about the Messiah. And you could probably think to yourself, well, did they not read the Old Testament? Because there's passages that say where Jesus is from. He's going to be from Bethlehem. Perhaps you're thinking that to yourself. Well, they understood that and they knew those prophecies. You remember from Matthew chapter 28, Herod goes to some of their leaders and says, where's the Messiah to be born? And they're like, oh yeah, it's going to be over here in Bethlehem. But what they had in mind is that he would be born in a particular place and would be largely unknown and hidden until he would suddenly appear on the scene as here he is, here's the Messiah. And they get that from Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 that says that he will suddenly come to his temple. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to the temple. This is what their expectation was, that he was going to suddenly appear. So they're, they're seeing Jesus and they're saying, well, he's from Nazareth. That's where he's from. We know where he's from. He didn't suddenly come to the temple. This can't be the Messiah. This is similar to what was said in John in chapter 6. Do you remember? Verse 42, is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know. This can't be the Messiah. We know where he's from. They could not believe the claims of Jesus because they knew where he was from. They knew his family, his hometown. This can't be the Christ, even if our leaders have decided that they think he is. Isn't this just an unbelievably shallow reason not to believe in Christ? I'm not going to believe in you because I know where you're from. Do you see that? That is incredibly shallow. That's keeping them from believing in him. So can you imagine on the last day as they stand before God at the great white throne judgment and he asks them what they did about his son and they say, well, I didn't believe in him because he was from Nazareth. Can you imagine standing in the presence of the holy God and that is what condemns you? Is that Jesus is from Nazareth, so I didn't believe in him. What an incredibly shallow excuse this will be. Do you see how ready to discount the entire person and message of Christ unbelievers are? We said several weeks ago, as we looked at another passage, that it, 
It's not a matter of proof that keeps people from believing. It's, it's not because there's not enough proof, because, friends, there's a lot of proof. It's not about proof, that we don't have any proof that our Bible's actually legitimate. We have thousands upon thousands of manuscripts. It's not about proof. It is an unwillingness to believe. They don't believe because they don't want to. They don't believe because they choose not to. Here these people of Jerusalem are in all of their arrogance, listening to the word become flesh and thinking among themselves, this can't be the Christ because we know where he comes from. That is unbelievable. This is what keeps you from being saved? See, he's from Nazareth. Problem is, truly, at the core of it, is they don't want to believe in him, so they don't. It's no different today. Sinners lost in their sin, they look for any and every reason to deny the claims of Scripture, to deny Christ himself. So Jesus responds to them, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus acknowledges that they do have some surface-level understanding of where he is from, but in reality, they don't have a clue. You, you might know the city that where the human person, Jesus, is from, but you have no clue where he's truly from. What's more important is you have no clue who sent him. You have no clue why he's here. So Jesus tells them that this proves that they don't even know God. They are totally ignorant to the reality of who Jesus is, which proves that they don't know God. Because if he was sent here from the Father and they can't recognize him as such, it shows that they don't recognize the Father. They don't know the Father. You might think you know me and you might think you know where I'm from, but really you have no idea. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Just think about that for a little bit. This is, remember, the middle of the Feast of Booths. Who instituted the Feast of Booths? God. Whose temple are they here gathered in? God's. Israel was the people of who? God. They were the chosen people of God. They had the scriptures. They had the Torah. They had the law and the prophets. They were known as the unique chosen people of God. And here Jesus stands in front of them and says, you don't know him. That is terrifying. Because they think they do. They think so much that they know God, that they know him so well that they could recognize this man is a fraud. The one who stands before them, who is the true, unique son of God. John 14, 9. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can Jesus say that they don't know God? First of all, because he is God and he knows all things. But secondly, because here he is, the son of the living God, standing before them. And they can't recognize him. They don't know Christ, therefore they don't know the Father. 1 John chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. So what did they do? They literally denied the Son. Therefore, they don't have the Father. They don't know the Son because they don't know God. How sad it is to think that you're religious, to think that you're very knowledgeable, to think that you are of the people of God and not know God at all. What a tragic self-deception this is. 
their problem was that they only knew the human side of Jesus. They only focused on his humanity while completely rejecting his divinity. They only knew him as man, as the man from Nazareth. But they would not, and so then they could not accept his deity. They could not accept that this unimpressive man from a nowhere place like Nazareth could possibly be the one that they had waited for for generations and generations. There's no way. You're from Nazareth. You're not the Christ. People do the same today, don't they? You know why the modern Jesus is so wimpy and so inept and so powerless? It's because he's nothing more than the vain human imagination of the best a human can be. He is the most loving that a human can be. He is the most compassionate that a human can be. And since he is just a human, he loves like a human. But this fails to see his deity in that, yes, he is human. And at the same time, he is absolutely God. So when he loves, he loves like God loves. When he shows compassion, he shows compassion like God shows compassion. When, when he rebukes, he rebukes the way that God rebukes. Everything that Jesus did was exactly as God did it. Why? Because he and the Father are one. And if you reject the Son, you don't have the Father. You're lost. As no matter how saved you think you are, you're lost. Hebrews tells us that he is the exact imprint of the nature of the Father. So to reject Christ in his total deity is to reject God himself. And this, this is the message that sinners hate. They hate for their Jesus to be confronted, for their view of Jesus to be confronted. Look at it here in our text, verse 30. What do they say in response to this? So they were seeking to arrest him. They retaliate in vain, though, don't they? As angry as they might be, as much as they might hate this message that he is supposedly the son of God, that he is here from the father and he's going back to the father. You want to tell us that we don't know God? We're going to try to arrest this guy. Let's lock him away. Let's make him stop. All in vain. Because the text goes on to say, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. In vain does sinful man strive against God. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do the heathen nations rage and strive against God and think that they're going to cast off his bonds? I love Psalm 2 because it goes on to say, he who sits in heaven laughs. He laughs at these puny, pathetic, pitiful, little attempts of sinful man to cancel out God. Are you kidding me that creation is going to rid itself of its creator? That's not possible. They retaliate here in vain. They don't realize that Jesus is in total control of the situation because he is operating according to the Father's clock not theirs. There will come a day when they will be allowed to come against the Lord and his anointed and to kill the author of life, but not a hair on the head of Christ can be so much as moved without his permission. Their hatred might be boiling. They might be seething. They can't do anything about it until he lets them. As Jesus will say later on, no one takes his life. He lays it down. No one can take his life. He lays it down. God's plans and purposes cannot and will not fail. Brothers and sisters, it is no different for you and I. Though you and I are not the unique son of God, we are his children. And as his children, we have the security and the safety of divine timing, don't we? 
Nothing can happen to us before God's time or without God's permission. Great men of old have said it in this way, that until God's destined day for you to perish, you're invincible. Nothing can happen to you until God says it's time. And when God says it's time, nothing can change that. You are operating according to his time, regardless of how aware you might be of it or not. Nothing can happen without God, apart from God's time and without his permission. Let that be a pillow upon which you rest your weary head. But it wasn't all bad in this crowd, was it? There was, there was nothing really great going on here. It's all bad, almost. But look at verse 31. Some believed in him. Some people believed in him. Really? They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You, you want to be encouraged by that? But also you remember at the end of John chapter 2 when a lot of people saw the signs that he was doing in Jerusalem. You remember and it says that many people believed in his name but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. And we learned that people who trust in Jesus because of signs, the people who exercise sign faith, that it's shallow, it's, it's empty. And we don't know what happens to these people. John doesn't tell us. But what they're saying here is, is all about the signs. Because they're focused on that. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So a lot of commentators who understand Greek, because uh, I don't. I don't know if you knew that or not. I don't actually speak Greek at home. Uh, they, they say that the way that that's constructed, it, it's begging the answer to be No that there's not going to be another Christ figure who comes and does more signs than this man because this man had done so many incredible signs that there's no way that there could be somebody who comes later who does more. So they're saying, because of the signs, he's probably the Christ. And so we're believing in him. Perhaps, again, perhaps it's real faith, perhaps it's not. We don't know. But at least there's some glimmer of hope in this other, otherwise very bleak passage. Let's go on to the maliciousness of the religious leaders. Look here at verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer. And then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Since chapter 5, verse 18, we've seen very clearly that the religious leaders want to kill Jesus. This is not a new development for us. But it does show an increase in their hostility towards him because now they're, they're putting some skin in the game. They're actually trying to arrest him. They get the, the guards to go after him. Now, who knows what that looked like? Maybe there was a, a secret plot to, to steal him away in secret. Maybe they were saying to barge in there, make him stop right now. We don't really know, but in some way, they're wanting to get this guy to stop. They don't want to hear it anymore. He's a blasphemer. He has a demon. These are the kinds of thoughts that they had about Jesus. As we've said a few times recently, it was, it was all because of what Jesus was teaching. It was this teaching that caused this sort of reaction that, that stirred up all of this hatred for him. A few verses ago, it was the general crowd of the residents of Jerusalem that wanted to have Jesus arrested, but they failed. And here, now, it's the chief priests. I mean, if anyone has the authority to arrest Jesus, 
It might not be the regular citizens of Jerusalem, but it's certainly the chief priests. These guys had serious authority. And so now they're stepping in and saying, do you hear what they're saying about him? Some people are starting to believe in him. Some people think that we're weak because we, they know we want to kill him. And here he is teaching, and we're not doing anything about it. Let's put this to a stop. So they get involved. And they send the officers to go and arrest him. But guess what? They still can't lay a hand on him. Look down at verse 45 and 46. We'll see that these officers that were sent to arrest Jesus, they return to their leaders empty-handed. Jesus responds, likely to the officers here in our text, but probably the people in general. I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Jesus is foretelling of his resurrection and ascension back to the Father. He is a a major problem for these religious leaders, so he's saying, There's going to be a day where I'm not going to be here anymore. And it's coming very soon. Because at this point, they're about six months or so away from the cross. Six months. You think this is probably heavy on the mind of Jesus? Soon I will not be here. Certainly what was most prevalent in his mind was that he was going back to the Father. He's a major problem here for these religious leaders for the Jewish people in general, but soon he's not going to be here anymore. Not because they're going to finally defeat him and get rid of him themselves. We know that's not true. God will use them to bring about his plan of redemption. But who's in control the entire, every single step of the way through the crucifixion? God. God is in control. He is doing the whole It is all operating according to his plan. While they won't have to deal with the problem of overcoming his teaching anymore, Jesus presents a much greater problem that they're going to have. There's going to be a day where they will seek him, and they're not going to be able to find him. Nor will they be able to get into heaven, he says. Where I am, you cannot come. In some way that is beyond our comprehension, Jesus was simultaneously in heaven and here, according to this passage. Where I am, you cannot come. What does that look like? I don't know. But that's what the text tells us. The point of it, though, is that he's telling these Jews that are in front of him, you're not going to heaven. You can't go. This is altogether the opposite of what he tells the disciples, isn't it? He tells his disciples, I'm going away for a little while and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back for you and I'm going to take you with me so that where I am, you can be. What great hope. But here he is telling these Jews, these people in front of him, you can't come. There's going to be a day where you're going to seek me and you're not going to find me. That is absolutely terrifying. There will be a day when they will not be able to find Jesus though they search. And they will not be able to get into heaven though they plead. This brings us back to the question that we asked in the introduction. Does does God's patience ever run out? Brothers and sisters, I will readily concede that this is a difficult statement made by our Lord. But we dare not dull the edge of the sword of truth because of its difficulty. There is a definite sense in which, no, God does not run out of patience because... When he decides he will no longer show patience, it's not because he's no longer patient, as though he no longer possesses that attribute. God is always patient. But 
there is a day where he has fixed that he will no longer demonstrate his patience, where he will no longer show his patience. Paul Washer illustrated it very well. He explained it this way, that it is as though with both hands, God has both hands up with one hand, He's beckoning sinners to come and saying, come, receive life, believe upon me, be saved. And on the other hand, he's holding back and restraining his wrath. But there's going to come a day where both of those hands are going to drop. And he will no longer extend the hand of mercy and grace. But it will now only be the unbridled fury and wrath of a holy God. And on that day, there will be no salvation. If you have not believed upon Christ already, it will be too late. If that doesn't shake you to your core, I don't know what to tell you. That is utterly horrifying. I believe that what Paul Washer illustrated is seen here in this passage. Jesus foretells of the day when both hands are going to drop And the offer to receive grace and mercy is rescinded while judgment and wrath are unleashed. For the unbeliever, it's the day that they die. It's the day that you die in unbelief. It's the day that the the hand beckoning them to come will drop. The moment they cross from this life to the next is the moment they no longer have the opportunity to turn to Christ, it's too late. Turn to the next chapter and look at verse 21. He says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Do you think that Jesus means this? You think he means it? He says it on two different occasions, very close together in the flow of this gospel. I'm going away. You're going to seek me. You're not going to find me. Where I'm going, you're not coming. That would be a, a completely bewildering statement to hear from a religious zealot. Friends, he is not talking to a prostitute in some back alley. He's talking to the religious leaders, the guys who think for sure they are first in line to get into heaven. He's looking at them and saying, you're going to die in your sin. You're not coming with me. You're not going to be there. You are going to die in your sin. What a shocking statement. This is why Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Did you hear the while? Seek the Lord while he may be found. We read this past week in our study of the book, The Holiness of God, where R.C. Sproul explains how we take for granted God's grace. And we don't really think about the justice of God, how we're, we're shocked when we don't see grace. We're shocked when we don't get mercy. We're shocked when we see a demonstration of justice. We as humans, we get so accustomed to waking up day after day, living through so many different difficult situations, so many incredible, mind-blowing life events. And we get so accustomed to that that we convince ourselves that there is always going to be more time. I'll prove it to you. Have you ever put something off until tomorrow? Have you ever said, next week, I'm going to do this. Next month, I'm going to do that. Do you know what you are doing? You are presuming upon God that he's going to grant you that tomorrow, that he's going to grant you that next week, that he's going to grant you that next year, and you have no earthly idea if you will be here to see it. James tells us that such boasting, boasting of tomorrow, is evil. Have you ever heard people say, one day I'll get right. 
One day I'll settle down. One day I'll give my life to God. I once knew a man who said, join me on this day at this church. I'm going to give my life to Christ. Off in the future, it was like a month later. In a month, you're going to give yourself to Christ? Many people think that they're going to wait to turn to Christ on their deathbed. People like that ought to fear texts like this that say, you're going to seek me and you're not going to find me. You're going to try and you're going to fail. You will not get saved. You're going to die in your sin. This is a theme all throughout Scripture. We see if, if we are paying attention that God gives a time of grace and mercy. He grants time, so much time to turn and to repent. But then there comes a day when the opportunity to repent is gone. There's no more. There's no more. There comes a day when he says, you will seek me and you will not find me. Brothers and sisters, you need to understand this morning that that promise, it is as sure as the promise from Jeremiah 29, 13, that's just like it, that says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. That's a sure promise from God. And just as sure is, you will seek me and you will not find me. For the unbeliever who dies in their sin. Now, I believe that as long as a person lives, the promise of seeking and finding when you seek with all your heart is offered to even the worst of sinners. But I also believe that there are some who are so hardened in their unbelief that they're going to die in their sin. For them, there will be a day when they will not be able to find Christ. They will beg for just a drop of water to help alleviate the burning. But no water will be found. There is a reason why hell is described as the place where there is weeping and gnashing teeth. Do you sense the urgency in this text? Do you, do you feel the weight of it? Perhaps you're in here this morning for the first time ever. You're noticing the stirring of your own heart. The hell is real and that you're a hell-bound sinner. Friend, I would say to you, as the writer of Hebrews said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to him and be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow. He has granted forgiveness, one person said. He has granted forgiveness to your repentance, but not tomorrow to your complacency. Turn to him. Today is the day of salvation. Now, right now. But for those who wait, for those who can't be bothered with believing in Christ, for those who just can't imagine this foolish, mythical religion actually being true, that is a fairy tale of days gone by. For those who will go to the grave that way, there will be a day where they cannot be saved. Even for the outwardly religious individuals who have never trusted in Christ, who went to church every day of their life, who gave everything except for their heart, even those people, they're going to realize too late. Do you know what that will sound like? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to notice these Jews still don't grasp what Jesus is telling them. They ask themselves, where does this man intend to go that we're not going to find him? They ask, maybe he's going to the dispersion. He's going to teach the Gentiles. It's just full of snark and sarcasm. And most tragically, full of unbelief. Because they don't ever deal with what he's saying. They don't ever deal with the reality that where he is, they cannot come. 
They don't deal with the reality of impending judgment upon them, and so they don't believe it. They harden their hearts against Jesus and his teaching. They utterly miss the point of everything that he has said, and this is why they will die in their sins. It's because even stern, clear warnings from the very mouth of the Son of God, they're not received. Instead, they mock and remain in their unbelief. Brothers and sisters, I do hope that weight of texts like this does press upon our hearts the urgency of the need for unbelievers to be saved. I hope that you feel the weight of a text like this and and cease putting off talking to that family member or friend about the gospel. I hope that we would see clearly and understand that unbelievers, they're going to look for any reason not to believe. Anything. Even something as silly as where Jesus is from. And it's because they don't want to believe. For them, we want to press upon them the urgency that we feel in a text like this, that they have an urgent need to repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for salvation before it's too late. I'll close with the words of Charles Spurgeon. Most true is the gospel. For God is its author. Believe it. Most able is the Savior, for He is the Son of God. Trust them. Most powerful is His precious blood. Look to it for pardon. Most loving is His gracious heart. Run to it at once. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I can't even begin to think of the terrors and the horrors of realizing it's too late. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who feel the weight of that and feel the urgency of that and rush to tell our loved ones of the gospel while they have time, that we would be reminded of texts like this that are so difficult. They're so difficult to hear and it and it's gloomy, and I came to church to hear this gloomy message. Lord, I pray that you would make this real to us and help us to see and sense the reality of judgment and how it is impending upon us. And that we, as, as people of God, as, as people who are saved, who, who will not taste of that judgment, that, that at the same time we would not wait and put off things till later but that we would go and generously spread seed, trusting that you will give the glory. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.